0: Thank you for all the birthday wishes, all the birthday prayers. And for those of you that sent me birthday gifts, it was this morning. I checked and I'm I'm like, people are sending me birthday gifts with birthday notes. And I'm like, wow, that's amazing. Thank you for the birthday gifts or the birthday notes. I I love you all for that. Um, love all my patrons who sent me thank you notes and, you know, and sent me words of encouragement. Thank you. Thank you to all of y'all who gave me that day and allowed me to spend some time to celebrate. And so it's been awesome. Um, If you are here for the first time, this is what we call the Read and Rant. We are here to engage in the reading of the word. Uh, Every morning we sit down and we just simply say, God, what are you saying concerning yourself in this text? God, what are you revealing to us concerning people? And then the third thing is, God, what are you revealing concerning me? We ask those questions, those three questions. Um, every day as we engage in His Word, and we've journeyed through the Bible with it. We've journeyed through uh, a good portion of the Old Testament now. We're in the book of Psalms, y'all. We started from Genesis, and now we're in the book of Psalms, and today we get to read through Psalms 88, and we're just going to go as the Lord leads. We'll go as far as we can with the time that we're afforded. And just to spend time in committing to it, but for those of you who are here for the first time, we commit about 20, 30 minutes, just reading scripture, because I believe the reading of the word is a profoundly, uh, spiritual endeavor. Um, reading the word is spiritual activity. It's spiritual exchange. And, and so I, I want to encourage those of you who are growing in the faith or those of you who are even wrestling with the faith that those of you who are here that don't, aren't even sure what this Christianity thing is all about. Maybe there are those of you who are here who grew up in church and saw what was broken in the church and saw what was messed up about the church. And, you know, you moved away from the faith, but you didn't really actually move away from faith in Christ. You moved away from faith in the church and what the church has done. And so this is a reintroduction to Jesus. This is an opportunity for you to actually get to discover Jesus for yourself, to read the word for yourself, to read it in a context, in the context of your own personal experience in the word. And so. That's what we're here to do. Just read the Bible. Like, read the Bible. If you just read the Bible and read the word for yourself, it, it will transform your life. It will change your life. And so I just want to read with you. Um, I want you guys to read with me. And I want you guys to engage in the word with me. And that's what we're here to do. We're here to read the word. And so um, we're going to read together. We're going to start with Psalm 88. We're going to start with Psalm 88. And then afterwards, we'll, I'll share a few thoughts with you guys. That's why I call it a rant. It's to read and rant. And so I'll I'll read it and after that we'll just share what it says. We'll look at what it says. Not what somebody told you, but what it actually says. Okay? Um and yes, the Bible when it is not applied nearly destroys your life. When the Bible is not used appropriately, it nearly destroys your life. Um when the Bible is taught the way that's taught in a lot of churches, it does sound like fairy tale nonsense. Yeah, because you actually don't read it for yourself. You're taking what somebody else said to you about what the word says. But when you read it for what it actually says, you'll see that it's nothing you grew up on and nothing you may have been told that it is. And so this is an opportunity for you to really get to engage with it um, and to see what it is and to see what it's all about. And so anyway, that's what we're here to do. We're here to engage in the word and I'm excited about it. (laughs) Um, And so, um, and then afterwards, I'll just share some thoughts. And then after I share some thoughts, maybe you know, I'll close out with maybe some questions, who knows, we'll see. But anyway, that's where we're at. And so we're going to start with Psalm 88, the Psalm of the Sons of Korah. Do you remember the Sons of Korah as we read earlier in the Old Testament? There it is. Um, But this is our opportunity. So let's do it. Let's engage. Father, I thank you. I thank you for who you are. God, I thank you that you, um, Lord, invite us to dwell with you, to dine with you, to commune with you. Um, to tabernacle with you. You give us an opportunity for us to engage with you in your word. and, And so today, as we read this word, Father, we pray, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to us. Lord, we're asking these three questions today. What are you revealing concerning yourself today? As we read your word, what are you revealing concerning people today? And Lord, we're asking, what are you revealing concerning me today? So convict us, correct us, Lord, encourage us, help us, guide us, lead us, Father, be all that we need today, Lord, as we read your word. And we ask that in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Let's read. Read along with me. Let's go. Verse 1, Psalm 88, says this. Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I am overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest pits. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken from me, with from me my closest friends, and have made me repulsive to them. I'm confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day and spread my hands out to you. Hmm. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness? Are your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth, I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long, they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me, friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. Mm. Nothing new under the sun. Psalm 89. I will sing of the Lord, Lord's great love forever. With my mouth, I will make your faithfulness known through all generations. I will declare that your love stands firm forever, that you have established your faithfulness in heaven itself. You said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. The heavens praise your wonders, Lord. Your faithfulness, too, in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies above can compare with the Lord? Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? Hmm. In the council of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. Who is like you, Lord God, almighty you Lord are mighty and your faithfulness surrounds you, you rule over the surging sea when the waves mount up, you still them, you crushed Rahab, like one of the slain with your strong arm. You scattered your enemies. The heavens are yours and yours also the earth. You founded the world and all that is in it. You created the north and the south. Tabor and Hermon sing for joy at your name. Your arm is endowed with power. Your hand is strong. Your right hand exalted. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are those who have learned to acclaim you, who walk in the light of your presence, Lord. They rejoice in your name all day long. They celebrate your righteousness for you are their glory and strength. And by your favor, you exalt our horn. Indeed, our shield belongs to the Lord, our King to the Holy one of Israel. Once you spoke in a vision to your faithful people, you said, I have bestowed strength on a warrior. I have raised up a young man from among the people. I have found David, my servant. With my sacred oil, I have anointed him. My hand will sustain him. Surely my arm will strengthen him. The enemy will not get the better of him. The wicked will not oppress him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down his adversaries. My faithful love will be with him. And through my name, his horn will be exalted. I will set his hand over the sea, his right hand over the rivers. He will call out to me, you are my father, my God, my rock, my savior. And I will appoint him to be my firstborn. The most exalted of the Kings of the earth. I'll maintain my love to him forever. And my covenant with him will never fail. I will establish his line forever. His throne, as long as the heavens endure, if his sons forsake my law, and do not follow my statutes. If they violate my decrees and fail to keep my commands, I will punish their sin with the rod, their iniquity with flogging. But I will not take my love from him, nor will I ever betray my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter what my lips have uttered. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness and I will not lie to David. That his line will continue forever and his throne endure before me like the sun. It will be established forever like the moon and faithful witness in the sky. But you have rejected, you have spurned, you have been very angry with your anointed one. You have renounced the covenant with your servant and have defiled his crown in the dust. You have broken through all his walls and reduced his stronghold to ruins. All who pass by, have plundered him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. Indeed, you have turned back the edge of the sword and have not supported him in battle. You have put an end to his splendor and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with a mantle of shame. Hmm. How long? Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how fleeting is my life? For what futility you have created all humanity, who can live and not see death? Or who can escape the power of the grave? Lord, where is your former great love? Which in your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, Lord, how your servant has been mocked. How I bear in my heart the taunts of all the nations, the taunts which your enemies, Lord, have mocked, with which they have mocked every step of your anointed one. Praise be to the Lord forever. Amen. And amen. It's hmm. a lot there. Um, let me stop here for a second and just give you, um, just a quick, uh, understanding about what's happening here. If you noticed, and it's something that I've spoken to you all about, I felt it necessary to mention here as we transition to now another book in the book of Psalms, that's right. Another book in the book of Psalms. Um, I know that most of you, when you've read your Bible, uh, you read through it and of course there's Genesis Exodus Leviticus numbers Deuteronomy Joshua Judges Ruth 1 Samuel 2nd Samuel 1 Kings 2nd Kings 1 Chronicles 2nd Chronicles then there's Ezra then there's Nehemiah then there's Esther and then there's Job and each one is treated like a book and then you get to Psalms um let me, let me, I don't know we'll, we'll see if I get back to reading this part in the Psalms, but I felt it important, at least to stop right here for a second. Um, and pause since you guys are reading along with me. So I want to make sure we're all on the same page. Like we're all in the same place. The, <clears throat> the Bible, this is the first mistake that people make. The first mistake that people make when they read the Bible is they assume that the Bible is a book and that's not what the Bible is. Matter of fact, calling it the Bible is somewhat, can be somewhat confusing, right? It, It can be deflective to what it actually is. The Bible is not a book. The Bible is a collection of books. Matter of fact, the better way to look at the Bible is to look at it as a curated encyclopedia. The Bible is an encyclopedia. It's a collection of books, and this collection of books has been curated in a way to articulate a story. The Bible isn't just a story, but it is in large part a story. It is a story where the backbone of the story, the binder, you want to say, of the story is the children of Israel, the um, the Hebrew people, what we call the Israelites. These are the, the thread. If there's a thread that holds the entire cloth together, it's the children of Israel that hold this entire story together. And so the Bible is a collection of books that narrates the story of the children of Israel And the implication of the story of the children of Israel for all humanity, for all mankind. So it is a story of the children of Israel, but it's a story for all humanity and all mankind. And so, um, I say that because, you know, when people read the Bible, they often read it like it's a book. And so they read each book, like it's the same as the next. When each book was written, some written at a completely different time than another by a completely different author than another, for a completely different reason than another, with a completely different literary tone than another. Okay. And so when you, that's a good question. Why did God choose this lineage? God chose this lineage because God chose Abraham. Um, and that's what we learned in the book of Genesis. Let me just do a quick recap. And maybe that's what we're going to do because it's important for for us to make sure we know what this wh- where the story is going here. But before I say that, before I give that, and, and hopefully I can remember to get back to it because this is it's already becoming a rant, but stay with me for a second. What is critically important though, is that you see the Bible as a collection of books. Um, it's a collection of books and it was curated the way that it was curated maybe a few hundred years after the church was born. So just to give you a little context here, and I know this isn't a Bible study, but I just want to make sure we give a little context here. We'll save the Bible study for Patreon. Okay. I know my patrons are waiting for the next Bible study. Cause we're, we're still doing a Bible study on the church. And I hope what happens in our Bible study on the church is you begin to realize that the church for three, what the church looked like for its first 300 years, um, Looks nothing like what the church looks like today in most of the world, particularly speaking in, 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 in Western Christianity, a lot of stuff that we call church, like the Sunday worship, going to a cathedral to worship or going to a temple to worship, or, you know, the, the necessity of a Sunday sermon for preaching, um, you know, a pastor being the head over a church that runs a church. Like all that stuff is foreign to the church for at least 300 years, completely foreign to the church for three centuries. And really was established by the Roman Empire, which established what we know as the Holy Roman Catholic Church, which is more pagan constructed than it was biblically constructed. It was more culturally constructed than biblically constructed. um, and I've, I've been doing a Bible study with our patrons on Patreon about that. And so, you know, if you want to catch at least the introduction to that, we did an introduction last week and it's available on Patreon. But what I want to say, and I think it's important here at this point, is for you to know that the church, for two centuries, they didn't have a Bible. There was no Bible. There was no Bible for them to read. Okay. Uh, The Hebrews had some of these books that we see here and they read them and they sang them, but there was no Bible. And so what is the Bible? The Bible is a curated collection of books written by various authors in various times for various reasons to bring revelation to Jesus Christ. That was the purpose of this curated book and the way that it's curated it's curated in a historical narrative for that reason. It's a story. And so it's important for us to read the story, the element of the story, but it's also important for us to understand the context for whom the story comes from and who's at the center of it. And so it's a collection of books. It's an encyclopedia, really. And this encyclopedia is ordered in this way. The book of Psalms is the one that we're reading right now. It's not a book. Okay. Unlike the other books, when we read the Torah and you read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you read those five books, What what um what is also known as the Pentateuch, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the five books, we call them the books of the law. That's Western thinking that calls them just the law. It is a story of the people. Okay. We're the ones who separate the law from the story, but it's a story of how God is establishing His righteousness and justice through a people. How God is establishing His kingdom through a people. So you've got Genesis all the way through Deuteronomy and then Joshua, Judges, Ruth and all that. Now, I'll get get there in a minute. The book of Psalms is not a book. The book of Psalms is actually a collection of books as well. And we just now finished reading the third book in the book of Psalms. When you finish reading Psalm 89, you've read now the third book. Let me back up. We call them books, but the Hebrews didn't treat them as books. The Hebrews treated them as songs. And, and so th- they were a collection of songs. They were more like hymnals than they were books that you read and that you study. We're the ones who mess up and, you know, we. We read it a certain way, and because we read it that way, we come up with our own conclusions and assertions about the book because we're reading it like it's just some kind of book that we were meant to study. But these weren't simply books to study. They were songs to sing. And these songs were being sung by these people. This was, and I know some of y'all heard the analogy before, but I'll use the analogy again. This was a mixtape. This was a mixtape. That's what it was. Um, The first book was the first mixtape in the book of Psalms, The second book was the second mixtape in the book of Psalms, The third book was the third mixtape and we just finished the third mixtape. And in it, there were, you know, uh, a collection of 20 songs in it. And like every good mixtape DJ, you take the songs and you put them in a certain order to communicate a particular story for a particular time to communicate like a good mixtape DJ. What a good mixtape DJ does, if you want, you know, allow me to go back for a minute here. But what a good mixtape DJ does is a good mixtape DJ is going to take songs from different artists who are really speaking the language of the street where the mixtape DJ is located. And in the end, when he puts it together, he's narrating the story of what's happening in the hood or the story of what's happening in the city, the story of what's happening in the street. And not only is he narrating the story, but he's also narrating the perspective of what is to come and what has happened in the past. Sorry, excuse me. So I say that because if the book of Psalms is looked at and read like a mixtape, the books in that, it's a collection. That's what it is. a collection of mixtapes. It's a series of mixtapes. The question that we have to be asking is, is why are those songs ordered in that way? Because they're not chronological. They're not just by one author, another one by another author. Why are they organized that way? Right. Why why are they put together that way? What, why is, why is the mixtape, you know, um, um, compiled in this way? And, and so I'm only doing this right now so that you guys have a perspective. Now, let me back up for those who are here for the first time. And just to give you a quick refresher here, and I don't know how this is going to work, but stay with me. Quick refresher. We began the story of the Bible and the scriptures with what I would simply put as the kingdom of God. Now, that almost sounds like a floating idea, something that's up in the air, like kingdom of God, kingdom of God. If I were to make it real simple for you, I would say that we started off with what it means to flourish, what it means for God's creation and everything that God has done and asserted and spoken into, what it means for that thing to flourish. It was an image of what flourishing looked like. Some people use the term righteousness. Others use the term justice. But you can also use the term flourishing. And all of it really coincided with each other. Flourishing, justice, righteousness, order, whatever you want to call it at this point all represented the very character, the heart, and the will of God. I say that to you because often when people read Genesis, they simply read Genesis as if it is just a story about creation. When the book of Genesis is not a specifically and particularly a story about creation. Genesis 1 is about flourishing and it's about order. It's about what's right and what's wrong. Notice that throughout the book of Genesis, the narrative of the author of the book of Genesis is about separation. He's separating the light from the darkness. He's separating the waters, right, atmosphere and water. Then he's separating the water from the land. Then he's separating. Notice he's speaking about order. God is bringing order to the chaos. This is God taking what is chaotic and bringing order what we know now as righteousness to it. The term righteousness is not the term perfection. Okay, that's where we get this wrong. Righteousness is about establishing what should be and what shouldn't be, what is and what is not, all of which is determined by God. So, God is making all these things right, and he's establishing his righteousness. And so, as we see this narrative from day one to day two to day three to day four to day five, it's funny because there are, there are many people who have this argument about the universe, how long it took for the universe to be created. Genesis is not about that. Genesis is not about how long it took for the universe to be created. Genesis is about how God was bringing order to chaos. Again, how the Hebrews would read it is not how we read it. Because us Western thinkers, we got a whole different thing going on with us. However, we know how it ends because it ends with humanity. Where Elohim says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And notice what he says at the beginning, right there from the gate. He says, let them have dominion. Yes, let us create a man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion. You know what that word dominion means? That word dominion means rule. He literally says, let mankind rule. Well, how does mankind rule if there is no justice? And how does mankind rule if there is no government? unless the government was established from the beginning. The justice of God manifests through the government of God, administrated by human beings who he has made in his image. All right. When we say being made in the image of God, too many people look at being made in the image of God as... Well, I'm like God. No, that's not what it means to be made in the image of God. That's what it means for you to be made according to His likeness, which is why, pay very close attention now, which is why He separates the two. Let's make men in our image according to our likeness. He's not repeating himself anymore. He's saying two separate things. Being made in the image of God is not the same thing as being made according to His likeness. But to be made in the image of God is not simply a being, it's an activity, it's a doing. It's a doing that comes out of the being. So what is this being that we have? What is this doing that we have? God says it in more specificity in that same verse in Genesis chapter one, he says, let us make man our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion. Meaning then that to image God is to rule, earth according to God's justice. Why is all this important? Because I'm about to fast forward now because to rule then means that we were created as extensions of God on earth as ambassadors or as governors on earth. The best way for me to describe this. I'm sorry. I feel like I'm doing a full Bible study here on the image of God, but stay with me because this is going to be necessary because I need you to understand because now it's going to help us get to Psalms and we're going to understand where Psalms fits in all of this. And for many people who've been thrown off by what the Bible says, I hope this helps you out because now you're going to begin to understand what this is all about. This has been all about the kingdom of God. The thing is we don't know or we when we think of the kingdom of God, it's like this floating thing and this thing that we just don't know. We're just kind of like, what? What is this thing? What is this kingdom thing? And what is it? I don't know. Like it must, is it heaven? It must be heaven. The kingdom of God must be heaven. That's what it is. No, let me back you up for a second. He says, let us be met in our image, according to our likeness. Here's the best analogy that I have for that. Remember in conquest, England came to the West, United States, the Caribbean, all around the West and South America. And they would go into these places and they would occupy them. And when they occupied them, they would send viceroys, viceroyals, that's where the term viceroy comes from, or governors. And so when that governor occupied the land, they would stake a flag on that land. And now it became, you know, English territory. And then when they stepped on that land, whoever governed that land, ruled that portion of the land, but ruled that portion of the land, according to the sovereignty of the United Kingdom, where the term United Kingdom came from. They would go and just stake their flags on different pieces of land and the governor would rule that land and be given a seal and authority to execute on that land. But that execution was under the authority of the king of England or the queen of England, the monarchy. So the sovereignty of the monarchy was extended through the governors on these territories. No matter where they went, it became their land. If they went to Jamaica, it became their land. They would stake there. Now, if the viceroy or the governor who stepped into that land began to do what the viceroy wanted to do, that did not coincide with what the queen or the king of England wanted to do, the viceroy would be, um, they would take away his authority, he would lose his authority. And not only would the viceroy lose his authority, the viceroy would then be subjected to death because they would consider that to be treason. And the consequence for treason is death. Why is all this important? Because when in Psalm, oh, sorry, when in Genesis 1 28, he says, Let them, let us, Elohim make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion. He's saying, let them rule over the earth, meaning you are now an extension of my authority on earth. So now what happens? That's exactly right. It is plural. Us is not simply talking about a singularity. There is plurality in it. That's why it's Elohim and not El. It didn't say, let me make man in my image. Elohim among the Elohim said, let us make man in our image. I, I'm i only saying this because this is so critically important because you, you're going to lose and when, when you, when this finally comes together, you're going to understand now your role on the earth. Adam sinned against God. His sin was not eating the fruit in the way people say, well, he just ate the fruit. No, he disobeyed God. If the queen of England or the king of England says to the governor in Jamaica, back in the 17th, no, well, not the 17th, the 1300, 13th century, 12th century, 14th century, if if the queen or the king of England said, do not sow coffee seeds and the queen and the, and, and the, and the governor says, I think coffee seeds are, the land is great for it. I'm just going to do my thing. The moment that the queen or the king finds out that governor loses his right and he loses his life. Which is why in the moment that you disobey God, you will surely die. This is why he says for the wages of sin is death and the gift of God is eternal life, all that good stuff. Why does all this matter? All this is critically important family because the role of humanity and the role of mankind is one in which we have been given authority by God to rule the earth. God has extended his righteousness and his justice through his people. That's how it began. That's how it started. But Adam sinned against God. In the moment that Adam sinned against God, Adam committed treason. And the consequence for treason is death. So Adam was separated from God. Eden was lost because Adam now and God were not in covenant with each other. And because they were not in covenant with each other, Adam now, separated from God, has lost his right. Does anybody understand that now? This was what mankind was called to do. This is what it means to be made in the image of God is that separate from all creation, God gave mankind authority and mankind did not perform it. And because of injustice, all was broken. And yet, here's the thing about God is that he's loving, even though he's righteous and he's just, he's a loving God. And so in his love, He sought a means by which we can come back into relationship with him to restore our status of authority on the earth. And so he begins to establish that from the beginning, because we see it promised in Genesis chapter three, where he said, in your seed, you shall bruise his head. And so now we go through the scriptures and we see that from Genesis three, we see all that it was broken, division, separation. These are man, mankind ruling on their own, doing what they want to do, doing what's right for themselves, not seeking the will of God. If I understand that, not seeking the will of God, not seeking the justice of God, not seeking, no, no, simply doing what was right for himself. And then among them, God makes a choice. He chooses Abraham and he calls on Abraham. And by Abraham's faith, God is going to establish righteousness and justice through a people. He makes a promise to Abraham that he will be the father of many nations, because it is going to be through Abraham that all of humanity would be restored. God chose through his promise, through Abraham, that he would restore his righteousness, his kingdom. It's all about the kingdom of God. This was always about flourishing. It was always about the kingdom of God. And so now God is establishing his righteousness. So he does it through Abraham. Abraham begets Isaac, Isaac then begets uh, Jacob, Jacob, uh, his name is changed to Israel. Israel begets 12 sons, all of it's messy and yet God has a promise through them. And then these 12 sons, now they go, Then this is how Genesis ends. Then we go into Exodus and in Exodus. Now these 12 sons become 12 tribes and these 12 tribes become a nation of people. And because they become a nation of people, now they've been subjected under the oppression of the Egyptians and under the rule of the Egyptians. And yet God intended for these people to rule except that he told Abraham how they would rule. They would rule with his righteousness and his justice. They would rule to be the mediators of God on earth. They would would rule in being the representatives of God to show what ruling was supposed to be like, not by power and might, by authority, by money, by economics, by anything, but by sacrifice and submission and service. And he called these people and set them aside and said, it is going to be these people who will be holy and set aside to show the world what true flourishing looks like and what it looks like to rule the earth. But what did these people do? In Exodus, God then reminds them, and He establishes a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. He gives them the Ten Commandments, and in giving them the Ten Commandments, we read all through Exodus and also through Leviticus, all these laws, a series of laws, all to establish the righteousness and the justice of God. But Exodus was where God set up the contract. He said, you will be my people. I will be your God. I will set you aside, and I'm going to give you a way to live that will be different than anyone else has ever lived, so that I would show what my righteousness and justice would look like. That is is Exodus. Exodus in a nutshell. But of course, these people, even though they were given the law, disobeyed God. And in disobeying God, what happened? In disobeying God now, they were distant from God because they were given the law and yet they could not obey the law, but God still had a promise on these people. So God gave them a means into access back into relationship with him. He gave them Leviticus. Leviticus was the law in which to give people who are sinners access back to God that those who are separated from God because of the consequences and the effects of sin would have, would have access back to God. And it would be done through blood sacrifice because, again, in the Book of Leviticus, God revealed a truth that the life is in the blood. And so it was through the blood sacrifice that these people would have access back into the presence of God. And so they would continually practice the sacrifice of blood, of uh, the blood sacrifice of an animal, so as to maintain and to sustain their access back to God because it was through Him that flourishing would come. Through him would come wisdom and knowledge, and through him would come the kingdom and the justice of God. This is what God was doing. This is what God was establishing. And so Leviticus is all about that. They left Exodus distant from God, but they leave Leviticus back in the presence of God by the means of the atonement that is the blood sacrifice. So then now, now that they're there, the book of Numbers is about them counting the army that would go into the new land, that they would set aside, that they would establish their kingdom, that the whole world would see what it looked like to rule according to the way God wanted them to rule. And so Numbers was the journey to the promised land. The book of Numbers, you see the whole journey. And in the journey, we see that they don't get to enter into the promised land, not because of their sin, because God gave them a means to enter because of the sin. No, they entered into the promised land. Because of the, they did not enter into the Protestant land because of their lack of faith. And because of the lack of faith, God said they might as well stay. And so he waits another 40 years to establish a new generation of people. And then in Deuteronomy, he gives them the law again. It wasn't because they were unclean. It was because they did not have faith. And they did not believe because they did not believe. Now the next generation comes in and then Moses gives them the law again. That's why the book of Deuteronomy is called Deuteronomy. That's why it sounds like a repetition because it was the law again. And after they received the law again, they made the commitment and they recommitted themselves to God and said, God, we will follow your law. And it's there that God gave them the promise that they would have victory over the land Moses couldn't go in. So Joshua went in with them. And Joshua let them in. And that's what the book of Joshua was about, how they miraculously had conquest over this land. And now this land has been established. And at the end of Joshua, we see that they began to fall into sin again. They weren't ruling as God wanted them to rule. <laughs> they, they started ruling like how the Canaanites were ruling, using politics, power, money, and economics. And so because of that now, they lost. They began to decline and continue to decline. And so the book of Judges was a cyclical spiraling down where at the end of the book of Judges, the children of Israel not only look like all the Canaanites around them, they look worse. We see at the end of Judges, we see um, human trafficking, sex trafficking. We see slavery. We see everything that is ugly about humanity, crime, power, murder, all of it. We saw it because the consequence of not serving under the righteousness, the rule of God is going to be what we saw at the end of Judges. And the end of Judges ends with, man did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king in Israel. Then we go into, after Judges, then we go into 1 Samuel, which is the prophet. And then 1 1 and 2 Samuel, which was the prophet that ushered in a new king. It was Saul who they wanted, but not who God called. Then it got into David, Second Samuel. Then we see First Chronicles and Second Chronicles articulating the story of how this, this this rule began to be established. This was the children of Israel. This is the story of the children of Israel. First and Second Samuel, First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Kings. Ooh, I love that book because in First and Second Kings it tells you what happens when even though these people were called by God, they did not make a commitment to God. David sinned against God and because of his sin, we see a fraction in his family. We have, we see Solomon who was called by covenant. Solomon rules over Judah, which was two, two tribes. The other 10 tribes were ruled in the north from the, from his rebellious son, really birthed out of his rebellious son. And then afterwards we see that, that, that the Assyrians and the Syrians and the Persians and the Babylonians and the Ethiopians began to take over. And they took over these people because these people did not obey God. These kings were more concerned with obeying the gods around them rather than obeying the one true God, the one who revealed the righteousness and the justice of God. And so again, these people have fallen to captivity. And then we see Ezra. Ezra, they're returning back to Israel after Israel has been destroyed. Nehemiah, Ezra comes back to teach them the law, to teach them the word, to remind them of who God called them to be. Nehemiah then returns. That's why it goes from Ezra, then Nehemiah. Nehemiah returns to rebuild the wall. Ezra's rebuilding the temple. Nehemiah's rebuilding the wall, bringing organization and back into the land that was taken from them a long time ago. And we see Esther who lived in, um, lived in exile, who even though she was in exile, she was still um, a Hebrew woman and how in exile, God called her to establish and protect the people of God. Then we go into Esther, then we go into Job, and Job seems so different because Job doesn't fit within the rest of the book, because Job is speaking about something that the children of Israel are wrestling with, is how are we going through the pain that we're going through? How do we address the suffering? What have we done wrong? to suffer, and what can we do right to fix it? And yet God was speaking about a different justice, not one that's based off of what you do well and don't do well. It's not right and wrong leading to pleasure and pain, but rather God working His justice, even in the midst of pain. And now we see the children of Israel who have been going through pain. They haven't seen stability. The nation is falling apart. The nation has been dispersed all around the world. And a few have come back to Israel, but many of them are dispersed all around the world. And then we see the book of Psalms. And I hope you notice, as we've been reading through the book of Psalms, that they keep bringing up all the stories that I just mentioned. Notice how we've been reading through the book of Psalms, and they're bringing recollection to all the stuff that we've seen transpire to this point. And we get to this book, which is a collection of books, which is a collection of songs, which the children of Israel sang while they were in captivity. They would sing these in their homes. They would sing these at dinner. They would sing these songs, um, um, you know, when they were in the temple. They would sing these songs when they worshiped together. These songs they would sing reminded them of their history, reminded them of where they came from, reminded them of what got them there, but also gave them hope for what was to come. Songs, (laughs) mixtapes that told their story. I hope at this point that you're reading the Bible from a different light. I hope at this point you're reading the Bible through the narrative of what God is doing through a people, not what God is telling you to do yet. I hope you're reading it first through a narrative of how God is working and moving in the life of a people, not through, this is what the Bible says that I ought to do. How many of us have read Exodus, have read Leviticus, have read Numbers, and we read the rules in that book and we treat those rules as if they were rules that were written to us. And here now, we find ourselves in the book of Psalms, and we see the Psalmists. I mean, look at what we just read. We read, if you just, if I could just pause for a moment, we read Psalm 88, the sons of Korah. And, and if you remember, the sons of Korah were part of the—you um, can read about them in the book of Numbers. We can read about the sons of Korah in the book of Numbers, how they led in worship, and yet here, this is the psalm of worship, and they're speaking concerning David. We read the stories of David. We read what, what transpired uh, 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 concerning, sorry, not, not 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 sons of Korah concerning David, but sons of Korah concerning Israel. Then we read the next psalm in Psalm 89, and we read what is transpiring concerning David. Notice in Psalm 88, this is a dark psalm. It opens up in verse one. I know I only have a few minutes, so let me just give you my thought. We'll be back here tomorrow. We can talk a little bit more and I'll post this for you guys on, on Patreon. So you'll get it on Patreon. Um, It'll be available for the podcast in a month or so. But I I want you to, I want you to, to look at verse one. It says, Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night, I cry out to you. This is something that was happening. Centuries before. And yet the people singing it now are singing it in regards to what they're going through. Remember what the sons of Kor were going through. And yet now, the children of Israel are going through it. And they're singing the songs that the sons of Kor are singing. This book is closing out on what seems like a dark tone. This second book in the book, sorry, this third book in the book of Psalms in the, I'll call it the books of Psalms, it's closing out on a dark light because here it speaks about being overwhelmed, life drawing near death, seeing darkness, eyes being dim with grief. He says, I called out to you, O Lord, in verse nine, Every day, I spread out my hands to you. I don't know if anybody knows what that feels like. And then you would think that as they pleaded with God, that there would be a resolution. But verse 18, he calls with, You have taken me from, you have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. Verse two is, may my prayer come before you, turn your ear to my cry, and it closes with, darkness is my closest friend. Have you ever found yourself in a place where you're praying, but you're praying in darkness? You ever found yourself in a place where you're praying Nothing seems clear. You've found yourself praying, but anxiety, bitterness, fear, everything. We see all these emotions by the authors of this text. sees death around them. Your wrath heavily lies on me. Isn't it interesting that there are many of us who we find ourselves in this place where, like the sons of Korah, we feel like God must be mad at me. Praying in darkness. Children of Israel find themselves here. It is my eyes are dim with grief. Can I just speak real quick on this? I know I don't have, I don't have a lot of time. I know I got to close. I know, I know, I know, but I want to speak into this. Grief has a way of clouding everything you see. When you are grieving, even things that may have brought joy to you before bring pain to you in the moment. Grief robs you of joy. Grief robs you of satisfaction. Grief will rob you of experiencing the corporeal presence of God. Grief will do that to you. So what do you do when you find yourself in a season of grief? How how do you how do you confront grief? I'll say this, and this is gonna be critically important, because for many of us, when we grieve, that's when we are distant from God. You know, I find it interesting that m- many of us we take grief as an opportunity to distance ourselves from God. Because I can't be grieving and come to God with it. I'm supposed to be happy. Everything's supposed to be good. Life's supposed to be great. Everything's got to be good if I'm coming to God with with in the presence of God in prayer. And so what we do is, is we fall into the lie of the enemy and the rules of the enemy that says that if you're down and out, God don't want to hear that. And somehow if I'm grieving and I can't make sense of it, that in my ignorance of trying to make sense of what I'm going through, I'm not permitted to speak to God, not until I figure it out, not until I get it right, not until I get it together, not realizing that the scriptures say to us that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, O Lord, do not despise. Do not fall into the lie of the enemy that says to you that when you grieve, that's when you distance yourself from God. No, when you're grieving and broken, that's when you run to him. That's when you run to the presence of God, because when you're grieving and broken, you have an opportunity now for God to take whatever is breaking you to shape you and to mold you and to make you into who he's calling you to be. Notice that God, has a plan for these people, and yet they're broken, but they do not hesitate to come to God with their brokenness. They don't hesitate to come to God with their pain. I find that for many people, the reason why it's hard to come to God with our grief is because we treat God like he's a solutions maker. Stay with me, fam. So when we're grieving, because we can't make sense of it, notice what you're telling yourself. When you're grieving because you can't make sense of the grief, you hesitate approaching God with it. Because the truth is, is that you fear not getting the solution. And for God to let you down, and in God letting you down, your whole faith falls apart. So rather than addressing the hard question with God and dealing with the hard thing with God, we distance ourselves from God, not bringing it to him. I love the book of Psalms. Because the one thing that changes your posture is when you know who you are. One thing that changes your posture is when you know who you are in Him, when you know that you are His son, when you know that you are His daughter, when you know that, you come to Him with your grief. I want to make sure, because sometimes I think people get offended by some of the things I say, and I want to make sure that you understand this because I think this is critically important. There is a difference between group, let me back that up. There's a difference between intelligence and ignorance. You can be intelligent, smartest person in the world, and yet be ignorant. Intelligence is the ability to process information and gather information. Ignorance is just the lack of information. So when somebody says that you've been, that you're ignorant to something, they're not saying that you're dumb. You might be the smartest person in the world. They're saying there's information you have yet to have accessed. That's all that means. And yet when you're ignorant and you acknowledge your ignorance, rather than being offended by it, you should be compelled to seek to know more about whatever it is that you're ignorant about. Ignorance is not a bad thing. Ignorance, if you choose to stay ignorant, is. (laughs) Does that make sense? Like if you choose then yeah, it sounds that way. But when you pause yourself and say, I guess I don't know. So if I don't know, then why not gather insight, information, and understanding? It's just the absence of revelation. Yes, the absence of light. I say that because many of us are ignorant of who we are. Yes don't be offended at this point when I say this, because I'm not saying you're stupid. (laughs) Okay. What I'm saying to you is if you fear coming to God with your grief or you hesitate coming to God with your grief, Your hesitation and your fear is coming out of ignorance. Notice, not out of your lack of intelligence, out of your lack of revelation. This is all love, okay? This is all love. If you fear Going to God with your grief or your frustration or your pain or your darkness. It is the root of sin. Oh man, this is tough. You know what sin does? I'm done. I I don't have time. I'm ranting and I got to close because I got to go. You know what sin does? People have this weird fear about sin. They, they're they afraid, well, sin is going to send me to hell. That's not what you should be afraid of. People say, well, I'm afraid to sin because sin will send me to hell. Yeah, I know. Anybody said that? I'm afraid to sin because if I sin, I'm going to go to hell. How many people believe that? Believe that? that. Somehow you need to stop sinning in order to go to heaven as if Christ didn't pay for your sins, as if Jesus didn't pay for your sins, past, present, and future. The problem with sin is not that sin sends you to hell. The problem with sin is that sin makes you ignorant. Sin makes you forget who you are. Sin clouds your perception about who you are. And because it clouds your perception about who you are, sin will make you think that all you are is a baby mama or all you are is a baby daddy. Sin will make you think that you're just dumb. Sin will make you think that you're no good. Sin will make you think that there's nothing better for you. Sin clouds your perception. Notice that when you sin, the enemy uses that against you, puts shame and guilt on you to cloud who you are. And it's out of that ignorance that many of us, when we sin, we do exactly what Adam did. We hide from God. Ever noticed that when Adam sinned, he didn't hide, God didn't distance himself from Adam. When Adam sinned, Adam hid from God, not God from Adam. Because in the moment that Adam sinned, he saw himself. And when he saw himself, he made a judgment about himself and about Eve that caused him to decide for himself that he needs to be separate and distant from God to the point where it was God that came to Adam and said, Adam, where are you? Even when Adam sinned, God was seeking after him because God knows who Adam is. The devil, what he wants you to do when you find yourself in sin is he wants you to be ignorant. Sin makes us ignorant and in making us ignorant distances distances us from God. Sin separates us from God. But when you know who you are, even when you don't know, at least you know who you are in Christ. You know who you've been called to be. You know the authority that God has given you. You know the promise that God has put on your life. And when you know the promise that God has put on your life, you don't allow situations and circumstances to change it. Let me say that again. When you know the promises that God has on your life, you do not permit circumstances and situations to change it. When you know who God has called you to be, you don't allow little slip ups, shortfalls to stop you from acquiring or experiencing what God has promised for you. If God's promise is yes and amen, do not let the enemy put doubt in your mind. Do not let the enemy make you question who you are. Do not let the enemy know you get yourself back together, pull yourself together, collect yourself, come boldly before the throne of grace. That's what he says boldly before the throne of grace. You don't go passively to the throne of grace. I don't care who you are, where you've been, what you've done, where you came from, what you said yesterday, what you said just five minutes ago. You can boldly come before your father who knows who you are, who's called you by name and has put his hand on you and allow him to remake you, remold you, restore you and bring you back to who he's called you to be. Stop hiding from God. Stop hiding. You go to him boldly. A lot of our anxiety comes out of our ignorance, but I love notice. I said ignorance, not stupidity. Nobody here is stupid. Not one person here, but many of us are ignorant and we have been because we forget who we are. We just forget. We just forget. It's like, oh snap. I am a child of God. Oh. I am called by. Oh, oh, yeah, that's right. God does love me. So now, if I'm going through it, even if it don't make sense, I can come to him with it. I can come to God and say, why, Lord, do you reject me? Why do you hide your face from me? I can, I can notice they're asking that question. And yet there's a, there's so many theological implications to that question, but they came to him with their ignorance. <laughs> and if they can end before the presence of God and say, you have taken me, friend and neighbor. you have Sorry, you have taken from me, friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. Some of us would never come to God and admit that to him. Some of us would never actually come to him with that because we're still trying to perform. But today, we come before God knowing who we are. And David says in the closing, oh, I'm sorry, um, Ethan says in the closing song. Even in the midst of this darkness, even in the midst of all of this, he will call out to me, you are my father, my God, the rock, my savior. Even if you don't know what you're going through, even if it doesn't fully make sense, Do not ever forget who you are, because it's going to give you confidence for what you're going through. Father, I thank you as we um, close out today. Father, I know we have so much that we could speak into and uh, um, and there's so much to, we could just do this all day. (laughs) Help us to know who you are. Guide us in your truth, guide us in your wisdom. Guide us in your knowledge. Guide us in your understanding. Father, even in our ignorance, Father, give us revelation. Reveal to us the goodness of who you are, even in the midst of darkness, even in the midst of pain, Lord, to know that we have the privilege to be called co-heirs along with you. Do not ever allow us to forget, <laughs> ever. let me say that in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you all fam I, I really do and i don't know we'll try to get ig working next time i'm not entirely sure what's going on with that um but i do want to say this uh i appreciate you all i appreciate the birthday wishes thank you so much um for the birthday wishes the bible study that we're going to be doing on the church uh i'm i'm probably just going to move it to next tuesday I was thinking maybe I could squeeze it in tomorrow. I'm still debating on that. If I could squeeze in the schedule, I'll message you all. Okay. And I'll let you guys know on Patreon um, about whether or not we can make, you know, make um make tomorrow happen. I'm not entirely sure about that. But I will say this that what I believe is the most empowering thing about our Bible study on the church is, is I hope you see how what the enemy does, and it relates to a lot of this. I hope you see. Now what the enemy does, and he does this even in the church, is he pacifies the believer. If he can make you ignorant of who you are, ignorant of the authority that you have, ignorant of the capacity that God has given you, ignorant of the higher calling by which you are called, ignorant of knowing that you are co-heirs, not just of heaven, but of rule on earth. If, if you knew who you were, man the power that the church can move in. But again, the church has been constructed in a way to disempower the believer, to make the believer dependent, to turn them into people who depend on the spiritual professionals to do the work of ministry. No, God is doing so much more in the body today. And the revival is going to come when we all educate ourselves. to know what does the bible say about what the church is not just what the church is. so anyway thank you so much guys love you all uh don't forget subscribe um to my mailing list because i'm going to start posting one paragraph synopses of our reading rants i'm going to start doing that just to encourage you i'll probably do it like monday wednesday friday maybe with the same order as um as the the read and rant podcast, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, please do. um, we are marching on to eighty thousand downloads. Amazing guys.